Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And my name's Greg Knapp. I'm in for Greg Columbus. A Greg for a Greg. <laughs> Not maybe the best Greg, but a Greg. But we are joined, as always, by the best Jim we could find, Jim Garrity of Nash Review Online. And this is the Three Martini Lunch. Hey, Jim, we've got a good one to start today, okay? Because uh, I love it when a liberal is hoisted on her own petard. And we're going to the Washington Free Beacon for this story. It's Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, Democrat New York. She dismissed liberal MSNBC host Rachel Maddow's coverage of her prior conservative views, rejecting their characterization as talking points from the Republican Party. Uh, now, you know, the reporting on flip is all true, but Jim, is, is Gillibrand using the Maddow as a stealth conservative copying Republicans defense going to work with her left wing base? Yeah, I, I was going to say, first of all, other Greg, great to have you with us. Um, this is, you know, probably a sign you've gone wildly off base when you're trying to argue <laughs> that MSNBC is, is, you know, secretly trying to funnel conservative propaganda to its viewers. Look, you know, there's, there's no two ways about it. Kirsten Gillibrand, when she was elected to the House in 2006, up until she was in the Senate, appointed to Hillary's seat in the Senate in 2009, during that time she was, you know, you could you pick your terms, centrist Democrat, conservative Democrat, indisputably. Very pro-gun, very tough on illegal immigration. Totally opposed uh, uh, driver's license for illegal immigrants and, and all of that. Um, opposed gay marriage, uh, which was a, you know, which at that time, most Democrats were shifting in that position. It is worth noting, though, that she did change her position in 2009 when she was appointed to the Senate uh, seat because Governor David Patterson told her she had to. Um, so good, good stand on principle there. But this, so this is how the New York Magazine does this great interview, very in-depth interview, but they ask, I think, a fair but tough question. You go on Maddow. Her intro to the interview is about how you were once fairly conservative on a range of issues, prominently on guns and immigration, and how you've shifted left on all of them. That theme has been pretty front and center in a lot of the early coverage. Did you expect that? And look, there's no good answer for this for Gillibrand other than to say, yeah, that's what my position was then. This is my position now. I've grown, blah, blah, blah. You know, we all know this was an adjustment to a fairly conservative House district to representing New York State, which is overall much more liberal. Her response, it's certainly the talking points from the Republican Party. Right. It's what they're putting out there. You know, come on. You, you know, need better spin than this. When you were describing her evolution is the word they like to use, right? Uh, you were basically describing what Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, and Barack Obama all went through on most of those issues. I mean, you listen to old Obama, Hillary, and Bill on immigration, and they almost sound like Trump. And then they slowly evolve as not really as their opinions change, but as the electorate changes. And it looks like, I don't know how you can look at it except for a race to the left. Mm -hmm. And Gillibrand doesn't want to be left behind, right? Yeah. And that's, it really might be one of the big themes of this primary cycle that you look at, you know, 2000 era Cory Booker is the kind of guy a lot of conservatives would have liked. Uh, very pro-school choice, very frustrated with the uh, the Newark Democratic machine, took on took it on, uh, you know, a couple of years earlier. Um, Joe Biden, back in the 90s, tough on crime, get, let's get tough on criminals, death penalty, stuff like that. Almost every, you know, uh, Kamala Harris is probably going to have a lot of questions about how she handled crime and prosecutions back when she was a prosecutor DA uh, in San Francisco. It's going to be a, a, probably for all of them. The best defense might be, well, yeah, I've shifted, but look at all these other folks and how they've shifted too. But Gillibrand's was really transparent and shameless. And I think that uh, uh, the Matto, <laughs> Matto's a secret Republican plant is a sign you've reached uh, the bottom of the barrel for excuses. There you go. Martini one tastes pretty sweet.
All right, Jim, here's the second one. Second martini might be a little bit hard to swallow. The Democrats at first came out against what Congresswoman Ilhan Omar was saying that certainly sounded anti-Jew, some say anti-Semitic. It all depends, I guess, on how far you want to go. But they came out saying she shouldn't say that. They were going to you know, reprimand her or censure her. And now all of a sudden, a lot of Democrats on the left are coming out to defend her. They're blaming it, of course, on Trump. I mean, where does this go? Yeah. Well, if you're saying, oh, yeah, when you see the headline, Congresswoman Omar accused of anti-Semitic remarks, it doesn't mean the news is in reruns. Uh, it just means it keeps happening every couple of weeks. This is, by my count, the fourth or fifth time. Yes, mm -hmm. this did just happen a few weeks ago. Uh, sometimes she gets into more generic conspiracy theories when she said that someone had gotten to Lindsey Graham and, you know, forcing him to change his positions with the Trump administration and things like that. Um, but the controversy this week is right after she had, you know, this this consecutive <laughs> remark in which she talked about, uh, I want to talk about powerful lobbies that uh, promote loyalties to other countries and things like that. The Democrats, well, here we go again, we need a resolution. And then all of a sudden there's this, they're, they're backing away from it because there's been this pushback from uh, a lot of her allies, a lot of these freshman Democrats, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, there's kind of this argument of why are we eating our own, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now, you know, this is, I should give a little bit of credit. I understand Rahm Emanuel has a, uh, a piece in the Atlantic today that's pretty blistering of this. There are some Democrats who are bothered by this, but it does clearly fear that the center of gravity is shifting. And you would think at some point, if, you know, I mean, last time she did it, Chuck Schumer was not uh, subtle about it. And he said, you know, this is use of an anti-Semitic stereotype. It's offensive and irresponsible. This kind of intolerance has no place in Congress or anywhere in American society. No one should invoke anti-Semitic tropes during policy disagreements. And then she just did it again three weeks later. <laughs> so the question is, all right, you know, Chuck, Nancy, what do you want to do about this? Clearly, these resolutions and issuing a statement saying don't do that, all, all it does is generate usually a very disingenuous sounding apology from Omar. Oh, I didn't know that would offend people. Oh, Oh, is saying Israel hypnotizes the world bad? Was was that a big piece of traditional anti-Semitic propaganda? Oh, I had no idea. Oh, it's just a strange coincidence that my comments keep echoing this. Uh, my bad, let me, you know. And then this happens again a couple weeks ago. Republicans have kind of been saying, hey, at some point, don't you have to get yanked from your committee? Steve King got yanked from all his committees. Exactly. And, and the Democrats don't want to do that. And it's it's kind of interesting. You know, early in the week, it looked like Pelosi and Hoyer and the gang were like, all right, let's do this. Let's issue a resolution. Let's least. And now even this, you know, symbolic slap on the wrist consequence is being watered down. At this point, it appears it may not come to a vote to the House floor. Deeply disappointing if you think this sort of thing doesn't belong in Congress. Which makes you ask this question, Jim. Is there a significant percentage of the Democrats in Congress who sympathize with what Congresswoman Omar is saying. It seems like there are more and more who tend to think it's okay to go to those anti-Semitic tropes and may even believe them. And if you happen to be a, a woman of color and uh, a Muslim, and now you can say, well, hey, you're picking on me because I'm a woman of color and I'm a Muslim. Is there yeah. a segment that believes that? I was going to say, it's worth noting in that bookstore remarks uh, that generated all this, she said at one point, uh, what I'm fearful of, because Rashida, she was talking about Rashida Tlaib, another member of Congress, uh, and I are Muslim. And a lot of our Jewish mm -hmm. colleagues, a lot of our constituents, a lot of our allies go to thinking that everything we say about Israel to be anti-Semitic because we are Muslim. So a little bit of that, you know, uh, victim card jujitsu 
mm-hmm. you know, oh, I'm not, I'm not the, I'm the real victim here. Your, you know, your objection to what I'm saying is driven by anti-Muslim bias. Look, of course, not all Muslims are, are anti-Semitic. When you make four or five comments in a row, <laughs> we stop giving you the benefit of the doubt. And it's very clear that uh, the Congresswoman Omar is deeply concerned about the influence of APAC. Uh, right. She explicitly said it. She said so right directly. And here's the thing. There's kind of this argument of, oh, I, I'm worried about foreign influence. There's some people trying to say, oh, this is not just picking on the Jews. Well, other Greg, I don't hear much about the Arab American Institute being a problem and menace in American politics, the Armenian Association of America, Cuban American National Foundation. Um, there are plenty of groups. And then, of course, that's not even getting into all the foreign governments that hire lobbying firms, the Aiken Gumps of the world. You don't, you know, occasionally you hear some mutterings about that, but you know, it's no, no, it's always APAC that is always the centerpiece of this. And then, of course, right. I, you know, laid out in today's newsletter, does, does Israel, is Israel above criticism? No. Are there areas where Israel makes decisions and we in the United States would have problems with? Sure. Um, but when you constantly focus on Israel and you're not worried about a million Uyghurs in the Chinese, uh, uh, you know, re-education camps, or the Turks' treatment of the Kurds, or the Rohingya in in Myanmar, uh, you know, like after a while, when you're constantly focusing on Israel, people start thinking, hey, wait a minute, maybe it's you're not an all-purpose human rights activist, maybe you just hate Jews. And that's what, uh, I think it's a reasonable supposition in a lot of these cases. Yeah, I do too. And Jim, what's really sad is that you described the United Nations Human Rights Panel. Yeah, I mean, that United Nations is kind of the ultimate example of this. Yeah. Uh, Look, you know, this is my this is my to be sure. Look, I'm sure life stinks if you're a Palestinian. I'm sure there are a lot of protests. The Israelis do not handle that with kid gloves or light touch. Uh, the Israeli Defense Force does not mess around. This is a country that's been shaped by a lot of invasions. And let's face it, every couple of, you know, it's on a regular basis. The neighbors are pledging to kill them all. Uh, the Palestinians, Hamas, you know, Americans would have much warmer and fuzzier attitudes towards the Palestinian people. And they might be more sympathetic to the argument that they're being oppressed and that they're not being given um, anywhere near the kind of treatment that they they deserve if they didn't have gangs like Hamas and Hezbollah running around, right? If you're mm-hmm. firing rockets into, into Israel, Israel's going to shoot back. You'd think that'd be kind of well established with right. some years of history. For some reason, you know this. You know, this is what happens. This is you know it's one of those things where I'm not. I don't want to say, oh, all's fair in love and war, and Israel's never done anything wrong. They have. Having said that, you look at their history, you look at their circumstances, it's somewhat more understandable. And it's somewhat also worth noting that every time somebody tries to sign a peace deal with Israel, they get shot. Um, and it's one of those things people have said, you know, where is the Palestinian uh, Gandhi? Why, is, why isn't there a nonviolent leader to try to make the moral case for the Palestinian people? Well, the Arafats of the world shoot them. <laughs> you know, the, the uh, Hamas, Fatah, all these guys, they don't want a, a Martin Luther King type person coming along to advocate for the cause of the Palestinians because that would be competition. Um, and they very much like the power that they have. So, I mean, look, it's a long, ugly mess. It's been debated to death. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, when people, you know, when you, when you constantly focus on Israel and never pay much attention to any other forms of oppression or human rights abuses around the world, people think you tend to, ha- you just got it out for Israel. And it's not really driven by, uh, humanitarian concerns, but by some sort of deep-rooted animosity like anti-Semitism. That makes a lot of sense to me, and possibly because I just finished my second martini and I'm a little tipsy. <laughs> All right, here we go. Final martini, and this one might really push you over the edge. How about your 16-year-old who, you know, you don't even trust to make decisions on what movies they go to, how late they stay out, 
maybe even who their boyfriend or girlfriend is. Well, Representative Presley, Democrat Massachusetts, is ready to give them the right to vote. 16 years old in federal elections, allowing minors to vote for Congress and for president. She's pushing the amendment. Her first, she's a freshman congresswoman, or maybe I should say fresh woman now. I don't want to offend anyone. First to be introduced on the House floor would be attached to H.R. 1, expected to be debated this week. So what do you say, Jim? You're ready for your 16-year-old to decide who helps govern the nation? I was going to say, is this a major crisis facing the country? Is there, are there a bunch of, you know, brilliant 17-year-olds who are full of the answers to solve America's problems? And by golly, it is an in- we have to draw the line somewhere. We have to draw the threshold. I understand they recently, you know, a couple states have enacted it that if you're going to be 18 uh, on election day or, or by election day, they'll allow you to register when you're 17. And that, can, that stuff makes sense. But we have to have a cutoff somewhere. 18 seems fine. It's the age where men register for the draft. Uh, it's the, it's, you can't drink. And a lot of people have argued about that policy. You know, we, right. at some point, we got to pick something about when you are legally an adult in the eyes of the state and in the eyes of the law. Uh, when you can be charged as an adult for crimes. We have to draw it somewhere. 18 seems fine. Now, if you really want to say this thing is unfair and it's some sort of injustice that 17-year-olds can't vote, then I would argue, other Greg, let's have the 17-year-olds pay the kid's price at the movie theater. Or, yeah. and or have the option of ordering off the kitty menu. Like I can understand this argument of somewhere in puberty, you don't get the advantages of being a kid, but you're held to some sort of unfair standard of, of not allowed to enjoy the responsibilities of being an adult. But no, I don't believe that it's an injustice that 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds are not voting. Uh, I don't, you know, look, sometimes you got to wait to do stuff until you're older, kids. Uh, you know, I've got two boys who are eager to get out and do all kinds of stuff in life. And I keep saying, no, no, you're not old enough. 18 is reasonable. I don't see any massive problem. And considering the state of the electorate as is and how ill-informed they are and how half of them can't recognize the vice president and things like that, I don't see the problem of, oh, if we let's bring in the 17-year-olds. They're much more astute on these sorts of things. Well, Jim, to me, it's there's a couple things that jump out of me. First of all, we keep pushing adulthood further and further into life for most things, right? I mean, it used to be not so long ago in this country, 50 years ago, most 18-year-olds instantly got a job and started taking care of themselves and very quickly a family. Now we've got people waiting 21, they're out of college. Well, wait, wait, I'm not ready yet. Another three years of grad school, 24. Oh, wait, wait, I want to get my doctorate. And we keep pushing it back and we keep pushing back when these kids, these 19-year-olds in college that are really adults yet, their frontal lobe hasn't developed. And we keep talking about how they're just not ready to really handle all the things in life now at 16, when these kids aren't even really finished getting rid of their acne and really can't think straight at all, we're going to let them do this. So what it shouts out to me is just a shameless way to try to get more Democrats, uh, more Democrat votes, right? Because if you're not a liberal by the time you're 25, you don't have a heart. If you're not a conservative by the time you're 35, you don't have a brain. They're wanting to get the ones right now and get those votes. That's it's shameless. Yeah, it, it looks pretty direct on this. Um, there was, you know, when we lowered the voting age to 18 back in the 60s, 70s, sorry, I got to look that up, but the just being that there was a stronger argument of, wait a second, if I can get drafted into the military, 
but I still got to wait three more years to vote. All right, that's right. a fair objection. That, I know, agree. We, we should agree. have some sort of uniform standard of when you are an adult, and this kind of leads to that question of, well, you know, was it, you know, eight, 21 to drink, and isn't rental cars, you had to get up to the, like... 25 now. I believe it was, it was actually 87 for males. It was really, really high. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, but, you know, this idea that, you know, okay, we should have some sort of standardization of when you are that, and you have, you, know, get, you get all the responsibilities, you get all the privileges. Um, because you know, once you do this, someone's going to argue, well, wait a second, the 15-year-olds are unfairly oppressed and, and all that kind of stuff. The only way I could see this eventually panning out, if this trend endlessly continues, other Greg, is that um, eventually con this conceivably could lead to uh, prenatal voting. And uh, maybe that would help the pro-life cause. I don't know. Hey, anything we can do, because we know it's going the wrong way right now. Other Greg is me. I'm Greg Knapp. Uh, that was your third martini. Thanks so much for being with us again. My name is Greg Napping for Greg Columbus, Jim Garrity from National Review Online, always here. Thank you for joining us for the three martini lunch. We'll see you again tomorrow.